One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Well, I don't know about you, but I can be something of a news junkie. So I like having apps on my phone uh, from different news outlets. I often want to hear what's happening around the world in different cultures, with different governments, different languages. And since I use a sports illustration about every other Sunday, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that I frequent news outlets like ESPN or even the local sports talk radio shows. I'm a news junkie, and I like to be aware of what's going on in the world around me. Maybe you're the same way. But is God like that? I mean, is God aware of what's happening in the world day to day? Is he familiar with it? Does he know what's going on, and is he concerned? Is he involved? I think, even if we deny it, I think we can sort of think of God often as distant, as abstract, dwelling in some far-off place and only accessible by prayer that somehow get shot up to him, like putting a check in that capsule at the bank drive through So what is he like? It, is that what he's like, or is he more aware of our lives? And even more importantly, is he interested? Well, we continue on this morning in our study in the book of Exodus. So, Exodus is a book that describes events that took place about 3,400 years ago in the ancient Near East. It's the story of Israel, the people God chose for himself. So Israel is in, cap is in slavery, captivity to Egypt, and they're in need of a deliverer. And we saw last week that God spared the life of a boy named Moses, a boy who would grow up to be the deliverer Israel so desperately wanted. 
And we saw there in chapter 2, verse 10, that Moses had eventually been weaned by his mother and then given over to the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to be her adopted son. And this morning, we pick right up again in verse 11, and we see right away, time has passed. Moses is now a grown man. And so how will God's plan to deliver his people through Moses work out? Well, with our time together this morning, let's see in this passage that Corey has just read for us, two things. Pretty simple. Let's first see that Moses saw. And then second, let's see that God saw. So first, Moses saw. We see this right there in verse 11. So we fast forwarded several decades. Moses is now a 40-year-old man. We learned that from a sermon a guy named Stephen preached in the book of Acts chapter 7. And we see here in Exodus 2 that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw. So Moses is a grown man now. From Acts chapter 7 also, we know that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. But we see here that Moses was aware that he was not an Egyptian. Sure, he'd been raised in in Pharaoh's house. He'd been schooled in all the ways of Egypt. But now he goes out to who? To his people. He looks on their mistreatment. Hundreds of years of slavery. And he sees their oppression. He takes it all in. And then it gets pretty close to home in verse 11. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his people. So back in chapter 1, we saw how Egypt had begun forced labor among the Israelites. They had appointed taskmasters to oversee the slave labor. And now Moses sees up close and personal the injustice of this. There's an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, probably wanting to beat him to death. And Moses gets angry. He takes action. In verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Pretty crazy, huh? I mean, Moses doesn't waste much time to show us whose side he's on. Here he is, a a product of the royal house of Egypt, taking vengeance on an Egyptian taskmaster, striking him dead and then burying the evidence. The first thing I think we need to see here, church, is that Moses is concerned with the oppression of his people, isn't he? I mean, he goes out to see their suffering, and immediately he wants to do something about it. He wants to change it. He can't bear this terrible situation. And there's even more going on here than meets the eye. So remember what Daniel read for us earlier in the service from Hebrews chapter 11. There we saw that Moses here in this passage is making a conscious choice. Before him are two ways to live. He can either follow Pharaoh and soak up all the riches of empire and dominion in Egypt, or he can identify himself as a Hebrew, the slave of Egypt, God's people. He can either be the oppressed or the oppressor. He can either be the poor or the rich. Remember, here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so right here, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Church, Moses had everything you could ever want. He had earthly power. He had wealth. He had prestige. He had education. He had upbringing. He had status. He had pleasure. He had it all. All the trappings of royalty and power were his. But he considered those things fleeting, temporary, empty. What was more valuable was the reproach of Christ this greater wealth of belonging to the people of God. Those things were richer. Those things were more lasting than anything Egypt had to offer. It brings to mind that passage from Philippians where the apostle Paul in chapter three elaborates on his own heritage and the fame he had in his circles, but then says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, both Moses and Paul had status. They had what every one of us just yearns after. But they gave it all up to gain Christ. It was far more valuable to them. Christian, what do you value? What's on your wish list? God has given us so many good gifts in this world, but they're all meant to point us to the giver, to him, because in him we will find true treasure, true wealth, true pleasure. I know it's a long hymn, but I love it. What is the world to me? with all its vaunted pleasure, when thou and thou alone, Lord Jesus, art my treasure. Moses made a choice. He chose to bear the reproach of the people of God rather than keep the riches of Egypt. And church, this is beautiful. Do, do you hear echoes of a greater prince to come? another royal prince who would give up his rights, his privileges, his riches in order to take on the sufferings of his people. Again, Moses here points us to Jesus, to the one who gave up the riches of heaven to take on the rags of sinners and suffer in our place. I mean, we deserve God's wrath for our sin. That was our rightful place under the judgment of God. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Phil Reichen writes in Exodus 2, we see Moses identifying himself with God's people in their suffering in order to bring them salvation. Jesus Christ has done the same thing for us. Entering in our situation in order to save us. Friend, if, you, if you're here and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, then your hope is in this life, your relationships, your wealth, your success. But if you're honest, don't you see those things are just so temporary? I mean, relationships fall apart. Wealth flies away. Success crumbles with just one bad turn of the stock market. 
Only Jesus and his sacrifice in your place will bring lasting treasure. Only through Jesus can you be forgiven and and given true freedom that you desire, true relationship with God that you yearn for, whether you want it or think you want it at all. Trust in Jesus. And church, we must see here that Moses is concerned with the oppression of Israel. But once we see that, we must move pretty quickly on to see that Moses fails miserably in his efforts to save, doesn't he? I mean, he commits a heinous crime. He murders an Egyptian and then tries to cover it up. You see the signs of guilt all over here, can't you? I mean, before he even did it, he looked this way and that. And that's the kind of thing you do when you're about to do something you shouldn't. He's guilty. And he just hides the guy in the sand. He's desperately trying to cover his tracks. He knew he, his anger had gotten the better of him. Instead of submitting to God's law, he had attempted to free his Hebrew brother in his own strength. And we see his conscience bothering him, right? I mean, look there in verse 14. He's in fear that he's going to be found out. He's concerned for God's people. But he utterly fails in an attempt to rescue just one of the throngs of Israelites in Egypt. And then it gets worse. Verse 13. When Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So Moses is again concerned with oppression here. But here it's an Israelite abusing another Israelite. And so he confronts the one that looks like the aggressor and tells him to stop. I mean, they're brothers after all. Quit it. But it's then that his sin catches up to him. Verse 14. The man he confronts responds, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? I think you can all understand Moses' feeling at that point, right? We know what that feels like. I mean, the, the feeling you get when you're caught. Your secret that you desperately tried to hide is found out. And, and Moses responds like every one of us would. He freaks out. So he knows now that news has spread. Soon his life will be in danger. And even though he's Pharaoh's own, great, uh, Pharaoh's own grandson, he's shown himself now to be a threat. The very thing Pharaoh's just trying to squash He's even a traitor against the royal house. He struck down one of the Egyptians in order to save a Hebrew slave. There in verse 15, Moses' worst um, nightmares come true. The news indeed does reach Pharaoh. He takes decisive action. He sends out an all-points bulletin to Egypt's police force. Kill Moses. Not dead and alive, just dead. It's fine. There's nothing left but for Moses to hightail it out of Egypt, the place where he'd spent the first 40 years of his life. And so in verse 15, he flees, he runs away, he ends up in a land called Midian. And it's not entirely clear where Midian was located at the time, but it seems as though Midian himself, the father of that tribe, was originally one of the sons of Abraham himself. You can see that in Genesis chapter 25. And so in a way, Moses is going to his extended family, a fugitive of the law. There in verse 15, he sits down by a well, and it's there that we see the third occurrence in these verses where he's confronted with oppression and injustice. 
So look there, he's, he's taking a breather by the well. Seven women approach. They're all the daughters of a priest in Midian. It seems from other passages in Exodus that this priest is a follower of the God of Israel. And these shepherdesses come to water their father's flock. But that's when the bullies show up. Verse 17, other shepherds arrive. They drive the women away with their flocks. But I guess they kind of underestimated Moses sitting there and didn't realize that he's kind of against these sorts of things. Maybe the news hadn't quite reached them. Because he gets involved, and I don't know, you can use your imagination here. I'm sure he was raised up in the Egyptian arts of war. I, I imagine kind of like an Iron Man in an elevator type thing here. He steps in on behalf of the seven sisters, this time without killing anybody, right? More Captain America, maybe. There in verse 17, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses, a man, stands up to other men and drives them away from bullying and harassing seven women. And then going even further, he bends down to serve the women and water their flocks for them, something that would have been really weird for a man to do that for women in that day. And church, as I thought about this passage this past week, I couldn't help but think about the news stories of the past few months, right? Kind of these repeated revelations of men using their power to silently abuse women. So I just want to take this opportunity quickly from God's word to state unequivocally that sin is abhorrent to God. It is completely contrary to his design and his word. It is anti-gospel. There's no place for it in the church or anywhere else. But I especially want to address anyone here who is finding themselves or have found themselves in the past suffering in this way from this sort of exploitation from people in power over you. You must know that God hates that. And I can think that you feel shame and even guilt. Perhaps you've been told that shouldn't tell anyone or else you'll get in trouble. But listen, don't believe that for a second. If I read the Bible right, ultimately, you won't be the one in trouble with God. Your oppressor will be. He or she will need to stand and answer to him. So don't be ashamed. If you're currently undergoing this sort of suffering, make it known. Let us help you. Don't be afraid. God is in the business of healing broken hearts. All right, well, the girl's father is evidently impressed with Moses. He's wondering why his daughters have come back so soon, which shows that this oppression was probably usual and expected. And he rebukes his daughters for not inviting this guy to dinner. So the invitation is sent, Moses arrives, and there starts a relationship that lasts the next 40 plus years. Moses finds a home with Ruel and his family. He takes one of the priest's daughters for his wife. He has a son named Gershom. And for the next 40 years, he dwells in Midian. So that's that. 
That's Moses seeing the oppression of his people. But where is God? Does God share Moses' concern? Is God also bothered by the oppression of his people? Is God aware? Is God even involved? I love these next three verses. So let's move on and see how God saw. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so up to this point in this passage, we've seen Moses as a premier actor, right? He's the one who's doing things. He's the one who has seen the oppression of his people. He's murdered an Egyptian. He's fled from Pharaoh. He's taken up residence in Midian. But not everything shifts, and we see God in the midst of it all. Years have passed. By the beginning of chapter 3, which Lord willing we'll see next week, Moses is 80 But through it all, through all the suffering and trial in Moses' life and back in Egypt with his people, God is on his throne. And so here in verse 23, when his people groan and cry out and scream for help, their cry comes to him and he hears. He sees their oppression. Just like Moses had seen and been burdened by the oppression of the Israelites, now we see God also sees. In fact, he's never looked away. And unlike Moses, he's not going to fail in his plan to save. Notice in verse 24, family, the merciful compassion of God. And God heard their groaning. God heard. He wasn't distant. He wasn't remote. He wasn't removed. He heard their cry. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel. He observed their suffering. His senses were attuned to their plea for help. His ears were were open and inclined to their cries. His eyes took in their need. And even more than that, we see that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Church, in, in so many ways, these three short verses at the end of what really is the introduction to Exodus, chapters one and two, these set us up for the rest of the book. Because for the next 38 chapters, we'll see God hear his people again and again. And again and again, respond by remembering his promise to save and reaching down in mercy. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He remembered the promises he had made to them to make them a great people, to bring them into a land of blessing, to bring salvation to the entire world through them. And even though 400 years had passed, he still remembered He had never forgotten. God's not like us. He doesn't need a reminder app on his phone. He never forgets. He's the real deliverer in Exodus, hearing the cries of his people and stooping down in compassion. Tim Chester writes, it's not that God got distracted by other things. Remembering 
means God is about to take the next step in the fulfillment of his promises. He's about to lead his people out of slavery. He's about to bring his chosen deliverer back to Egypt after 40 long years. And church, our, our theme today is that God is merciful to his people. And can't you see that here so clearly? His people's prayer goes up and his compassion flows down. He's never forgotten them. He's merely working out his plan on his own timetable, even in and through their suffering. Family, God is not distant. He is intimately aware of the pain of his children. He hears. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're suffering. You didn't really want to come this morning, but you came anyway, and even the thought of God's grace makes you either depressed or sort of scoff a little bit. Maybe a relationship is strained. Maybe a bad diagnosis has come back. Maybe a struggle with habitual sin is plaguing you no matter how hard you want to battle it. Christian, do you know that God hears you? That he remembers? That he sees? That he knows? Alec Matir writes, God's knowledge of how we are placed, how we feel, what it's like to be us is not a remote or merely objective acquaintance with the facts. It involves a coming down, a knowing companionship, indeed a transforming intention. Moses saw Israel's oppression and he tried to do something about it, but he failed. But now we see here at the end of this introduction to Exodus, God also sees and he will most certainly not fail. Church, don't we see this compassionate power of God most clearly in the cross? There we see God's mercy in sending his own son to come down to us, to take on our flesh. Lord willing, that's what we'll be thinking about in December as we celebrate the Advent season. When we were oppressed in our slavery to sin, God came down. What a wonderful Savior we have. What, what a God we serve. We don't serve a Pharaoh, a, a wicked, despot king we cannot trust. Someone whose motives are to exploit us for his own fame and wealth. No, we serve a God who gave his treasured possession, his only son, to die for us so that whoever might believe in him will not die but have everlasting life. I love how one author puts it this way. One more quote. God does not remain safe and secure in some heavenly abode, untouched by the sorrows of the world. God is not portrayed here as a typical monarch dealing with the issues through his subordinates or at some distance. God does not look at the suffering of his people from the outside as through a window. God knows it from the inside. And yet while God suffers with the people, God is not powerless in the face of it. 
Church, what is holding you back from throwing yourself at the feet of this merciful God today? Suffering Christian, he gave his own son for you. He will not withhold anything that's good for you. So run to him. He knows your pain. His son has endured your pain. Cry out to him like the Israelites here in chapter two. You can be certain that if you are in Christ, he will always remember his promise to save you. That he will see you. That he will hear you. That he will understand your grief. God is so, so merciful to us. May we entrust ourselves to his grace. Let's pray. God, we are so humbled as we see your character in this book of Exodus. Thank you that when your people cried out for help, you heard. Thank you that you remembered your covenant and you put into play the next step of your divine plan to save. Lord, thank you that you ultimately would send your son to die. We give you great praise and we declare that when our souls are heavy and weak, as many of us are today, we only find our rest in you. And so receive our praise now from grateful lips. Amen.